The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of MedPEP or Physician Health Services. The advice given to Marie Curious has been individualized and may not apply to the listener. While Marie Curious is a real person describing both real and hypothetical events and situations, she is using a pseudonym for this series. Welcome to MedPEP, the Medical Professionals Empowerment Program. I'm Dr. Les Schwab, the host of MedPEP. I'm a practicing internist, have had many years in medical leadership, and am now also a trained professional coach. In that role, I help medical leaders, physicians, and other healthcare professionals develop strategies and plans for coping with very difficult and demanding healthcare practice environment. I'm here to serve as the colleague for my young partner, Dr. Marie Curious, an internist who is determined not only to survive, but thrive despite the difficulties of practice today. In each MedPEP episode, I facilitate a conversation between Marie and an expert with knowledge and skills to help her optimize and humanize her experience practicing medicine in these trying times. But before we proceed to today's conversation, I'd just like to check in with Marie, ask her how she is, and whether she's had any reflections on last week's conversation with Dr. Diane Shannon and was about one burnout survivor's story and her quest to change the system. Marie, how are you? Les, thank you for asking. I think you might be the first person to ask me today, actually. Now that I think back, I'm a bit tired, so unfortunately I can't practice in a vacuum, but I have two little ones at home. They have not been sleeping well, so I am a little bit sleep deprived. But I have had a chance to think about last week's episode, and it made me think about how to best prioritize what I bring to the attention of my supervisors. So I'm trying to be a little bit more strategic and not be what I would call a squeaky wheel for every little thing, but picking and choosing. So I will report back when I have more to share. Well, I look forward to that. It sounds like you are going to become intentional about your actions, very good. Well, I'm very eager to listen to your conversation today with our guest, Dr. Helen Reese. Helen is going to talk to us about unlocking the grip of burnout with empathic care. Dr. Reese, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here with us. And may I call you Helen? Of course. Okay, great. Can you tell us, Helen, a little bit about what you do to help the lot of us physicians survive the day to day? Well, I wear a number of different hats. And uh, first and foremost, I'm a practicing clinical psychiatrist. I also direct an empathy research program at Mass General Hospital. We've been doing empathy research for about 12 years. And several years ago, I founded an organization called Empathetics, which takes the empathy training that I developed through years of neuroscience research and puts it into an online empathy training format. That's really neat because in fact, Helen, I've been through empathy training fairly recently through my own organization. It was a one hour session and we went through a few scenarios and they asked us to go back and practice these things in our clinic and we were sort of let loose. Is this what you're talking about? Well, our training is a, takes a little bit longer than one hour <laughs> and we ground it in the neuroscience of empathy, which is a pretty robust and vast literature 
that really has examined how human beings relate to one another mm -hmm. and how we can advance how we both perceive the feelings and emotions of other people and how we respond to them. I think it's so interesting that empathy training is a field in and of itself, as you're explaining, because I went into the profession of medicine assuming that you needed empathy to do the job. What came about that really made you think that there was a deficit, perhaps, in empathy that required training? So, uh, Marie, you're absolutely right that most people who choose healthcare professions and medicine in particular come with a high degree of empathy. They have so many other careers to choose from. So mm -hmm. we self-select because people want to care for other people. Mm -hmm. What has happened over the years is that the natural born empathy that we come to the profession with becomes challenged. and it's almost always been the case that during the rigors of medical school and even residency training, mm -hmm. that empathy can get tamped down by the sheer volume of new knowledge that needs to be acquired by the intense preoccupation with getting the right answers and remembering things like the review of systems. And the focus on the patient's story, on their emotions, and on the way we connect, while it's highly prioritized early on in medical school, that kind of focus and emphasis seems to get short shrift as students progress through medical training. And in the past 10 or so years, there have been numerous media headlines on the empathy deficit in mm. medicine. And the way I really became so intrigued with this whole topic was that my own psychiatric patients were coming to their visits complaining really bitterly about feeling as if they're treated like a number, that mm. the throughput is so quick, mm -hmm. and really complaining that they feel that no one really cares. And mm. when this became kind of a really recurring theme and it coincided what, with what I was reading in the national headlines, I came to realize that in some ways the healers were harming the patients by not really taking the time to connect with them on a human level. Mm -hmm. And that's what started my journey. That's neat because you've touched on a few different aspects of medical care, one of which is that for example, as a medical student, you have an hour to interview a patient, not even do the physical exam. But then in clinical practice, a lot of us have 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes to do it all in one go. So it feels like a lot of external pressures that are making physicians act in a way that somehow translate to the patient not feeling cared for. Exactly, so in the past, medical students always did have the most time, mm -hmm. but they were also usually the most anxious about being with the patients. <laughs> and when physicians finally finished training, they had the luxury of having more time with patients without all the new learning and the exams and the boards and so forth. And so empathy used to rebound when uh -huh. physicians entered their practices. But all the factors that you just mentioned, the short visits, the quick throughput, that having to document everything and, and keep track of so many things that are being measured today, 
have really limited the amount of time that physicians have with their patients, which has really been a challenge to empathy because just the act of feeling rushed mm -hmm. can already get people focused on just getting a task completed right. as opposed to really sitting with someone and being fully present. So the time that we get with patients is probably not going to lengthen and maybe not something we can tackle today, but the empathy side of it is something that you have a lot of expertise in. Can you talk a little bit more about what you do when you train physicians in empathy? Because to me, empathy, like you said, a lot of us have empathy going into medicine, but somehow lose it along the way, or that empathy is not necessarily synonymous with having a warm or friendly personality. For some physicians, Helen, they may not feel naturally warm or friendly, but that doesn't mean that they can't show empathy. Is that something you address as well when you train physicians? Yes, that's exactly right. I'm really happy that you said that because some people have equated empathy with, quote, being nice. Right. And they are quite different. I think it's hard to be empathic and not be nice, but being empathic and showing empathy takes much more than a simple handshake mm. and, a, and a smile. So your question is, how do we train people to have empathy when the reality is, is that our time with patients is extremely limited? Right. And in surveys that we've done, lack of time has been cited as the most frequent reason why physicians say they don't have time for empathy. So the training that I developed really aimed at looking at how do people connect. Mm -hmm. So I have observed many physicians in a coaching capacity, and I've seen them walk into a room and start typing without actually even really greeting the patient or looking them in the eye mm -hmm. or sitting at eye level. Mm -hmm. And these are components of empathy that take no time at all. Mm -hmm. So right now, you and I are looking at each other, our gazes on each other's faces. I notice you have brown eyes. You may or may not have noticed my eye color. But when you greet somebody and you make a meaningful eye contact, and I don't mean staring or doing anything that could be perceived as disrespectful, but a meaningful eye contact and a gaze that says, I see you, mm -hmm. means that you, you've actually formed a connection before you even open your mouth. Mm -hmm. And the other aspects of our training involve noticing facial expressions. Mm -hmm. So our training includes sophisticated facial expression decoding. One of the main goals for this was to get physicians to actually look patients in the face. Mm -hmm. And a side benefit was that they learned the difference between confusion, anger, fear, surprise, disgust, or contempt, because mm -hmm. they all have different facial expressions. And we also focus on posture. Mm -hmm. Many of us think that we just communicate through words. However, nonverbal communication is over 90% of how we communicate. Mm -hmm. And more and more research shows that we communicate with our whole bodies. Mm -hmm. So even if I'm looking at you and looking interested, but if I sit here with my legs crossed and my arms mm -hmm. crossed like this, I'm conveying something quite different than mm -hmm. what I might intend. Helen, can I ask you a side question, which is that I do very much try to look at my patient's face when I'm talking with them and engage them from that level, but I'm also typing at the same time. Mm -hmm. I can type without my eyes on the keyboard, mm -hmm. 
but I am typing nonetheless. Has that been shown to be detrimental? Well, I, I think that the electronic health record has certainly presented new challenges, but also some new opportunities. So my advice is to make eye contact if you shake hands or however <laughs> you greet your patients and you take a moment to sit down before you start typing mm -hmm. and you might ask, you know, how was your daughter's wedding yeah. or, you know, some little bit about your patient's life. You've already established that you see them as a human being and a, as a person separate from the symptoms they walked in with. Mm -hmm. And then when you need to type something, simply letting somebody know, like, I'm going to be entering some information mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm and would you like to see it? Mm -hmm. And so I find that using a triangle between the physician, the patient, and the computer, the computer becomes a third thing that you can actually refer to together. And I think when patients are invited, do you wanna see your labs, or right. would you like to see your imaging test? You make that computer part of the visit. That's so interesting you mentioned that because I think I've developed that technique without even really identifying what I was doing because I always turn the screen towards the patient, but I find a lot of my elderly patients can't even see the print that's so small. So I say, I'm turning it towards you, but I'm gonna read all the values aloud <laughs> so we well, can review it together. Then, Marie, I think you have already, through your natural warmth and trying to connect with patients, you've incorporated the electronic health record to kind of serve as a a way to connect. I think the really big problem is when computers are in the corner and right. then the physician's back is to the patient. And mm -hmm. I actually consider that an iatrogenic problem, uh. that you cannot deliver compassionate or humanistic care with your back to someone. We would right. never think of going to a cocktail party and talking to someone mm -hmm. with our back turned, mm -hmm. let alone something as intimate and private as a an office visit. And I know at our hospital, we have been asked to report if we're in a room where we can't directly relate to a patient mm -hmm. and they will come and reconfigure where the computer is. That's fantastic. Are there any studies that actually look at the impact of more empathetic care on patient outcomes? Because we've been talking so much about helping the patient feel like this is a humanizing process. So that's a great question. And I first want to mention that our group did a study implementing empathy training, mm -hmm. and it was a brief three-hour spaced intervention. Mm -hmm. So we first wanted to show, actually, can we teach empathy? Right. And we were thrilled to get results that showed through a brief intervention that patients who were asked to rate the physicians before and after a training period actually rated them higher after a three-hour intervention than the control group. So we were soon asked, well, that is fantastic. You can improve the patient experience. Mm -hmm. And we all know that that's a top priority right now because mm -hmm. reimbursement's actually tied to patient experience. But then we were asked, and that improves health outcomes too, right? Mm. And we started to nod our heads and we had to stop because we really couldn't answer that without doing another research project. Right. So we 
embarked on a three-year systematic review and meta-analysis of all the randomized controlled trials that claimed that interpersonal factors improved heart health outcomes. Wow. And, you know, we... What kind of outcomes? You'll be surprised, but some of the most vexing health problems were ones that actually got better mm. just through interpersonal factors, such as obesity, mm -hmm. asthma, lung infections, unexplained medical illnesses, which I think are a large percentage of what, right. what internists see. And there were meaningful effects on hypertension and diabetes. So when people say, I don't have time for empathy or I don't have time to really connect with my patient, we are missing a vast opportunity. I'm curious, I understand that it is really important for physicians to tune into their patients and to demonstrate their attention and to interpret what they're getting. I wonder if you had any recommendations about how they should then take the input, synthesize it, and reflect it back to the patient. Mm. What, is, what is the acknowledgement of the empathy received that helps patients? So, Les, it's a really important question because empathy, if it just lands on our brain and we know that other people's emotions actually map on our own brains mm -hmm. and their pain maps in our pain centers, mm -hmm. so that we are actually having a shared experience with our patients, but if we don't convey that understanding, mm -hmm. it only sits within our heads and doesn't really benefit the patient. So if a patient looks, let's say, confused after you've just recommended a new medication, or let's say the patient looks disgusted, and if you missed that disgusted mm -hmm. look, you might write the prescription, hand it to the patient, and say, okay, then I'll see you in three months. But if you notice the look of disgust, a response would be, you know, I just noticed a look on your face that makes me wonder if, mm -hmm. if, you know, we're really on the same page here. Do you have any feelings about this new medication? And I have seen this happen where the patient says, well, my husband took that and it made him sick to his stomach every day. I I'm not going to take it. But if you hadn't asked about right. it, she might have taken the prescription and you might think she was adhering to the recommendation yes. when she had no intention. Right. So reflecting back facial expressions. So naming an emotion potentially? Well, is, is that what you would say? Well, that is naming an emotion. They say that if you can name it, you can tame it. <laughs> so um, another emotion you might see is grief or sadness yeah. if someone gets a diagnosis that they're upset about. Yeah. Again, ignoring that is going to make that person leave feeling really uncared for. Yeah. So. Instead of saying, oh, you look really sad, I think a better question might be, how is this landing for you? Mm -hmm. And what is it making you think about? Mm -hmm. One of the mistakes, especially with bad news, is to assume that we know that the patient, let's say it's a terminal illness, mm -hmm. is that they're worried about how many months they have left right. to live. Most often, patients are really much more concerned with what life events are they still going to be here to enjoy? Mm. So in our empathy training, we train physicians not to go into a lot of prognostic mm -hmm. information, but to say, what are you thinking about mm -hmm. right now? And just ask some open-ended questions so that you can learn where that patient is. So there are lots of ways to open up a dialogue mm -hmm. through empathic care and not to keep talking and filling in for patients. And 
I think one of the most profound ways that we can show empathy is to be able to tolerate silence. Mm -hmm. You know, when someone gets kind of quiet and to let it just be there for a moment and ask the patient, what's going on for you right now? Helen, those are really practical points that we could take into our own clinic room. I think one thing that might come up for some physicians listening to our program is that sounds all good and helpful for the patient, but here we are looking at a clock and it's continuing to tick. So if you ask open-ended questions and you have space for silence, my goodness, how can you fit this into the 15 or 20 minute appointment? I think the whole idea of feeling that you're in a rush is the biggest problem because mm. we all can have a minute of silence or a minute for an open-ended question. We also need skills in how to close a conversation. Yes. And that's also empathy training. Mm -hmm. I think we've probably all had interactions where someone needs to go somewhere and their hand is on the door handle while we're still talking. Yeah. <laughs> and we clearly know that whatever we're saying is the person's half out of the room already. Right. So learning how to say with empathy, I wish we had more time mm -hmm. for this visit. I'm mm -hmm. afraid I'm going to have to end our visit today, but what we're talking about is important. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to schedule a follow-up call or a follow-up visit if it's something really important. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes it also gives you an opportunity to say, your concerns are really important. Is there someone you'd like to bring with you next time mm -hmm. so that we can talk about it with a family member? Mm -hmm. But you know, one of the factors that actually adds to the likelihood of a lawsuit is acting like you're in a rush. Uh, and so this idea of being fully present while also being mindful of the clock and learning how to parse how many open-ended questions you're going to pose in one visit, the worst thing is to invite someone to say something that's right. going to take a while and then have to cut them off, right? It's learning a dance and it's learning how to titrate the responses you're getting. And I think that one of the key guides is to stay really focused on the patient in a way where you can read whether they want to open something up. Mm -hmm. Sometimes patients are in a rush and they want mm -hmm. to get through the mm -hmm. visit too, so they don't really want a big lengthy dialogue, <laughs> right? That's right. So Helen, taking it back, it looks like there's good evidence that empathic care is helpful not just for patient satisfaction, but also on their hard health outcomes. Looking on the flip side, has your research at all investigated whether empathic care affects the physician and help prevent burnout? Absolutely. There are so many efforts right now to reduce burnout, mm -hmm. and they fall into three clusters. One is to increase the efficiency of practice. Mm -hmm. Another one is to focus on physician wellness right. and well-being, and I know through the other podcasts that you've gotten some wonderful <laughs> tips and advice on just how to provide more self-care. Right. And then the third domain is professional fulfillment. Mm -hmm. And I think that empathic care plays a huge role here because when we go back to what drew us all into medical professions in the first place, it was this desire to help people mm -hmm. and to have meaningful work. We didn't go into medicine to push papers around or to click computer keys. We right. went into medicine to connect. 
And one of the greatest fulfillments in the human experience is to be helpful. Mm -hmm. So there is a wonderful phrase in an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association called self-care of physicians caring for patients at end of life. Mm -hmm. And this article mentions this beautiful term called exquisite empathy. And it's described as that kind of magical moment that happens when two human beings come together and the one feels really understood and the other knows they're really understanding. Yeah. And I think that this is one of the key fulfillments in practicing medicine is you can give someone hope when right. they're having a very trying time. You can give them a new medicine to try or you can give them a new rehab place to try if they're rehabilitating or you can give hope for parents who are looking for a solution for their children. And if we don't savor these moments, we can just let them go by and think like, okay, well, that was an easy visit, that's over now, and move on to the next problem. Right. But if we really shine a light on these exquisite moments when we have felt really helpful, I think that's a, the sustaining the goodness of meaning in, in, in the work that really does keep us going and that does really fill us up. I agree that those moments in our practice life these days are all too far and few between when we can take just a moment even to savor it, and yet we're engaged in this really wonderful, deep human experience, and I think it is indeed something we should learn to capture for ourselves. I had another question, actually, which was, do you ever encounter problems with what we might call empathy burnout, that <laughs> some physicians get so involved in solicitation of emotions and then because it's a shared experience become burdened by the emotions. So do you have anything to say about emotional self-management in order to preserve one's ability to be empathetic? Absolutely. I'm really happy you asked that question because it also gets at the understanding of empathy is not just an affective or an emotional experience mm -hmm. but also a cognitive experience. And neuroscience research shows that when we are empathizing, both our emotional centers in the midbrain and also the prefrontal cortex are actively engaged. And they use somewhat different processes. So having a bit of the shared feeling in many cases can actually form quite a connection. Mm -hmm. But if you're an oncologist who's giving bad news 20 times a day, you really can't afford to be absorbing everybody's sad affect or you can't go through another day of work. But what you can do is use the cognitive processes such as perspective taking, which is seeing the world through your patient's eyes, a theory of mind, which is imagining what is this person now going to be concerned with, what are their questions going to be, like what are their emotional needs. And these are cognitive ways we can process what's going on in the mind of another person. And then the whole area of self-other distinction. We have shared neural circuits, but if they get too shared, we can get overwhelmed, just yes. as what, what you were saying. Self-regulation plays a key role here. And I was really pleased to hear that you've learned about mindfulness and diaphragmatic breathing mm -hmm. and ways to kind of regulate your own um, physiologic responses. And that is also a key area of training that our empathy training includes because we're not just teaching everyone to feel more 
we want people right. to feel, but we also want them to be able to manage their own emotional responses so that they don't go home at the end of the day feeling that they're like 100 pounds heavier from all the emotional burden. And so it really is exercising and practicing some of the techniques that you've learned from the other podcasts. It absolutely is. I would say earlier on in my practice, I used to be somebody who would cry at every movie or you know, be a real feeler, so to speak. And I found that I was just getting completely drained by the end of the day where I gave of myself completely at work. But when I went home, I have two little ones and a husband and other people that I need to care for in my life. And so I found that I'm not distancing myself from patients per se, but that I'm setting up some mental tools to help guide the conversation with the patient so that we can come out with something meaningful from it without me getting completely depleted. But it, it comes with practice. I, I don't have it set. It, it definitely requires practice. And it, it's a fine line to be present and to be caring and also to know your own boundaries. That's right. And to learn phrases such as, I wish I had more time to sit right. with you right now. I know how hard this must be. Right. I'm here for you if you want to be in touch later. We also have social services available and I would love to introduce you to Jane Smith. So there's also recognition that you don't have to be everything mm -hmm. and you don't have to play every role. And if you make a personal introduction to someone who can provide more emotional support, mm -hmm that person becomes an extension of your care. Mm -hmm. And that's very different than just handing a business card and saying, oh, here, call her. <laughs> when patients know that you know the person that you're referring them to, mm -hmm. and saying things, if they're true, like I would send my own relative to right. this person, then they know that this is a really caring extension of your own practice. Well, all very salient points to fulfilling ourselves as caregivers in the midst of all the other demands made upon us. So thank you very much, Helen, for a really interesting discussion. I think we've really hit upon how one may demonstrate empathy, how one may govern a conversation so that the aims of empathy are satisfied, both to understand where the patient's at and make an offer that addresses their needs and that you've given us an understanding that there's value to both the actual demonstrable value to patients and providers for being able to have that kind of empathetic conversation. That's really important. And finally, that it is a countermeasure to burnout, that being able to have those moments of great connection, of instrumentality, of the demonstration of kindness really satisfy those kind of founding urges we have in going into the profession and finding a way to make good for it, even with all the challenges to finding such a, a way to, to feel that. Thank you. Helen, I really appreciate your reminder that we ought to savor those moments when we really connect with a patient or we've really done some good because shining that light on those moments is, I think at least for me personally, food for my soul. I can't describe it in any other way. Well, I would encourage you and people you practice with to share those moments with one another because I think we all need these islands of light. And it's so easy to hear people complaining at right. the water cooler, 
But I have found that it is really a kind of a, a magnetic experience if you say, I just had the most wonderful mm. conversation with this patient and to share some really one of those exquisite moments. And you notice like the whole room lights up. And, and so I think that's how we can use our own empathy to inspire mm. and lighten up the whole medical milieu we're in by sharing positivity. I'm gonna practice that, Helen. Absolutely. If we only focus on what makes us frustrated or dissatisfied or unhappy with the profession, that's going to be how we think about our profession. Right. And if we focus on these, these moments that really give us, give our jobs and our lives meaning, that's also infectious and mm -hmm. it can spread around an office in a very positive way. And what better way to show up at home than to be filled with something really positive at work that might actually spill over into your family life to create a new backdrop for mm. mommy came home happy from work. That's a good way of thinking about it. I often look at it the other way. I have pictures of my kids and they remind me in between patients how much joy they bring me and to help refill me. But let's see if I can do it the other way around. And there is actually a literature that I know from the coaching side of things where framing things positively actually generates positivity. That what we choose to put in our frame does condition our reality. So putting a positive frame around things now and then is definitely a helpful thing to do. It's that half glass full, Les. I'm still working on it. <laughs> right. but, but you can decide that today I'm going to look at the half full. Will do. Okay. Wonderful. Well, let me thank both Marie and Helen for this really interesting and encouraging conversation, as well as the members of our listening audience, whom I hope find value in it as well. If you have a question or a comment about today's program, email us at feedback at medpep.org or simply visit us at medpep.org. And now, here's a few words from MedPEP's founder, Steve Edelman. This is Dr. Steve Edelman, creator of MedPEP, the Medical Professionals Empowerment Program, and director of PHS, Physician Health Services, a charitable subsidiary of the Massachusetts Medical Society. Our mission is to promote the well-being of health professionals. Many thanks to our seeker, Dr. Marie Curious, to our guide, Dr. Les Schwab, and to our wonderful group, of guest experts. Hats off to project leader Dr. J. Dev Dasgupta, audio producer Douglas Stevens, guitardiologist Dr. Susie Brown, and to the staff and board of PHS. Please visit and connect with us at medpep.org for CME info, faculty bios, and additional empowerment resources. <laughs>